Book Two from the Point of View of Lady Bridget O'Hara. Chapter Six of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. The loafers at the bar all came out to see the start. The family on the top of the bullock dray peered forth from under the tilt. The barkeeper shouted, Good luck to you and your lady, Mr. McKeith. The drunken reprobates, awakened from their slumber on the boards, called out too. Gulaksh! There was an attempt at a cheer, but before McKeith had got out his answering, Thank ye, good day, mates. A shower of opprobrious epithets rained upon him from a little band of discontented bush rowdies, the advance guard of that same Union delegate who had come up with them in the train from Louisville. Three of these men lurched on to the bar veranda and, so to speak, took the stage. In front was a stumpily built bullock driver with a red truculent face a ragged carroty beard and inflamed narrow ridded eyes a little to the rear stood a lanky muscular bushman in very dirty moleskins with a smooth loose-lipped face no eyelashes and a scowling forehead who was evidently the worst for drink next to him a shorter man of the drover type older eagle-beaked and with sinister foxy eyes this one hailed mckeith yeah look at him and his spankin team what price honest labour you blamed scab of a squatter just you wait a bit it'll be our turn soon to burn all you blanked capitalists off the lure the lanky bushman took up the jeering note pretty flash turnout ain't it my word you think yourself a bloated fine gentleman now you've married into the british aristocracy don't you mr colin mckeith you can take it from us boys he's the meanest cuss that ever downed a harmless nigger ask him what the twenty-five notches on his gun stand for and i tell you what it is steve baines There'll be another notch on my gun, and it won't be for a nigger if you give me any more of your insolence," said McKeith coolly. Get out of the way, men. Let the horses go, Cudgee. Ready, Biddy? But Cudgee, out of malice or stupidity, did not let the Rowans go, or else someone else put a restraining hand on the reins. The man with the ragged beard roared out. Ho, oh, you think you're going to ride over us, you and your fine ladyship? What do we care about the British aristocracy? What we're asking for is the rights of labour, and we mean to have em. Do you want to know what he's done to us boys? Fired us out straight away, cause we was having a bit of a spell and a drink to keep the life in us after we'd close up killed ourselves liftin' that there ladyship's blanket hundred-ton weight of piano onto the dray. Mungar Bill's chivalrous instinct flamed to a counter-attack. He had just mounted, but swung down from his saddle and made a rush at the speaker. McKeith's stern voice stopped him. Don't be a fool, Bill. Let the brutes alone and push on with the pack. This is not the time for a row. As for you, Jim Steadbolt, you know me, and you know that if this was any other sort of occasion, you'd pay on the nail for your infernal cheek. Leave go those reins, do you hear? For the man of the ragged beard was jerking the near leader's bit and putting the mettlesome animal on its haunches. Damn you, let go! He leaned forward to strike at Steadbolt with his riding whip, but the lash had caught round the pole bar of the buggy and he could not extricate it. Bridget tried to help him. He turned to her for an instant, a soft gleam of tenderness shining through the steely anger on his face. No, keep still, my dear. Don't be frightened. I? Frightened? She gave a little laugh. Her form stiffened. The small pale face poked forward between the folds of her motor veil, and all the O'Hara spirit flashed as she spoke to the group of malcontents. How dare you? Stand back. I thought Australian men were men, and that they didn't insult women. There was an uproar in the veranda, and more cries of, Shame, Steadbolt, you. You just git, gumsucker Steve. We ain't got no use for you, Mickey Fail. Can't you see a lady as is a lady? 
sounded from the bar and parlour. It was the landlady who asked the question. The two reprobates who had been asleep lunged off the veranda and made a feeble assault on Steadbolt, who still clung to the reins. The man, lashed to fury by the scorn ringing in Lady Bridget's voice, made a last envenomed attack. "'It ain't us genuine Australians that insults you. Takes a mongrel Scotchy for that. Say, ladyship, just you ask your husband what sort of an insult he's got ready for you up at his bachelor quarters at Moongar. The words had not left his mouth when McKeith's driving whip whizzed in the air and raised blood on the speaker's cheek. Steadbolt dropped his hold of the Rowan leader's bridle and fell back, screaming imprecations. At a touch, the buggy horses bounded forward. "'Sit tight, Biddy,' said her husband. "'Up you get, Cudgie,' he shouted. The black boy leaped onto the back seat, and in a moment the buggy swerved by the bullock dray that was drawn up a little further down the road, and the excited horses galloped past the nineteen public houses and the zinc-roofed shanties, past the new quarter of tents and whirring machinery, past the deserted shafts and desolate mullock heaps, then way out along the sandy wheel track into the unpopulated bush. For the first mile, scarcely a word was exchanged between husband and wife. The horses were fresh, and McKeith had enough to do to keep them from bolting. Moreover, even in emotional phases, he was always silent while chewing the cud of his reflections. Bridget was thinking, too. She had an uneasy sense of startlement, without exactly knowing why she felt startled in that inward way. It was as though some great obscene bird of flight had brushed her with its wings, and brought vaguely to her consciousness unpleasant possibilities. But presently she became interested in watching Colin's handling of the team. She had often sat behind such a team, but never beside such a splendid whip. Impulsively she made some such remark, and he looked down at her, the hard face breaking into a smile. "'That's good. Wait a bit, my dear, until they've steadied down again. You see, they take a lot of driving, and I don't want to lay an accident on top of that unholy shindy.' He spoke in jerks. The Rowans were inclined to show nasty as Mungar Bill came abreast of them, and Wombo's pack jingled behind. McKeith gave Mungar Bill directions about the camp in Bush Lingo, which again turned Bridget's thoughts. The black boy and the stockman spurred on as the Rowan slackened pace. McKeith was able to relax the strain. "'My word, we scooted pretty quick out of that piece of scenery,' he said. "'I felt downright mad at your being let in for such a disgraceful bit of business. I hadn't time to tell you that I'd sacked those men half an hour before. Found them in the lowest of the grog shanties, their horses not looked after, Dray only half-loaded, and the three of them, Gumsucker Steve, was to have come and taken off our leaders when we got into broken country, thick with the Union delegates and sticking for higher wages. I paid them off and filled their places on the spot with two chaps off a wool-drive, so I left the brutes vowing vengeance, and I suppose they thought they'd lose no time in giving me a taste of it. Well, they're no loss. He had been explaining things in jerks while he brought the team to a harmonious jog-trot along a piece of uneven road. That fellow Steadbold is a wrong un, not good even at his own job of wooden water joey, which means, my dear, the odd cart driving on a place, and not to be trusted within ten miles of a public house. Lady Bridget asked suddenly, I want to know, Colin, what did that man mean by saying you had an insult ready for me at your bachelor's quarters? What insult? It seemed as though blue fire leapt from McKeith's eyes. Insult? Good God! Biddy, you can't hold me responsible for the foul insinuations of a beast like that. Insult you, my wife. The passionate tenderness thrilling his voice, the honest wrath and bewilderment in his face, must have silenced any doubt, had doubt existed in Lady Bridget's mind. I don't know, Colin. I don't even know what bachelor's quarters mean. 
have you an army of bachelors at Moongar? and what do they do when they're at home he laughed it's a shanty i put up for the new chums when i've got any and for the gentlemen sundowners that come along and visitors that i don't want to be bothered with at the house there's a woman up there he stopped suddenly and his face grew grim again that's it i suppose i'm sorry i didn't sling the whip harder and cut the fellow's cheek open i would if i'd thought he stopped again what woman have i a rival this is becoming dramatic lady bridget's voice was amusedly ironic but she carried her head erect tell me about the woman at the bachelor's quarters colin there's nothing to tell except that she's the widow of a man who went up with me on my last big bite expedition and was killed partly through his own and partly through my fault that's why i've made a point of looking after her and i built my bachelor's quarters chiefly to give her a job i thought she was too young and too good-looking to be drawing grog for diggers at pig tree mount which was what she set out doing i see so she's young and handsome oh in a coarse sort of way no i wouldn't say that she's rather refined for her upbringing anyway steadbolt as well as a lot of other men fell in love with her steadbolt was pretty well off his head over it she wouldn't have him at any price naturally and i had to give the fellow work outside the head station to keep him away from her that was before i went south very likely he's been trying it on again and knew i should have to get rid of him as soon as i came back why doesn't the woman marry again mckeith shrugged too jolly comfortable perhaps or perhaps the right man hasn't turned up florrie henser is several cuts above a malingering lout like steadbolt well there poor devil maybe it's not unnatural that i should feel a sneaking sympathy for an unsuccessful lover that abominable lie was a bit too strong though and before you the man must have been downright mad from drink and fury and bitterness it it's all funny isn't it one of the queer sides of the bush good old bush i am glad to be back in it again biddy he lifted his head and seemed to draw in the strong odour of the gum trees and the pure vitality of the weltering sun his anger appeared to have left only compunction behind it and again he begged her to forgive him for having subjected her to an experience so disagreeable they were on a stretch of clear road now and the rowans trotted pleasantly along lady bridget took up his words yes it's all funny that kind of thing in this setting i never supposed that i should be howled at by a revolutionary mob in the australian bush a bar les aristocrats it's quite exciting i think i should have enjoyed the reign of terror eh you're only frightened of four-footed beasts if you'd lived then you'd have gone up to the block with that smile on your lips and the proud turn of your little head just as i used to dream of you of me you don't know i'll tell you some day i remember talking to joan gildea once it's queer but never mind now do you like this biddy i love it i wish we could drive on through the forest all day and all night a dream drive i think i might be able to place myself at the end of it to place yourself i've never been able to find my true pivot inside all my life i've been howling in my soul and haven't known what i was howling for i thought today that you might teach me is it only today that you've thought that he said wistfully well anyway i'm glad of it colin she said abruptly wasn't it funking a little bit don't you think running away no not with you beside me you'll have other opportunities for seeing whether i've got much of the funker in me no doubt those brutes will give trouble some time what can they do fire my run spoil my cattle sales get hold of my stockman 
but I'm not so badly off as my sheep neighbours at Breezer Downs. They've got to have their shearing done, though I've had a lot of bother today. His face became gloomy, and I foresee more ahead. She asked what other sort of trouble. Why, there's been no rain in Moongar since I left it five months ago, and pleuro means inoculation and short sales. Ah, oh, well. He flicked the wheelers gently. Shake it up, Alexander. Look alive, Roxolana. I named him when I was reading Roland's ancient history, my dear. My dear. He looked down at the little woman by his side with deep tenderness in his blue eyes and a smile that banished the shade from his face. Oh, my dear, there ain't going to be any bush worries for us this blessed afternoon and evening. It's the poetry and romance. He pronounced it romance of the bush that's got hold of me now. I'm just longing for us to strike the camping place and then just you and me together just man and woman, alone with nature. He put his hand on hers, and she pressed it in return. The woman in her thrilled to the man in him. Kaji, on the hind seat with his back to them, broke the spell. "'My word, Massa, you look out, Mithis. Big fellow Goanna sit down along the tree.' And for the first time in her existence, Lady Bridget beheld a monster iguana dragging its huge lizard tail and turning its stately brown crocodile head round at her from the safe vantage place of a thick gum branch. After that the way led off the main road, on by a less used track through wilder country. Here Wombo the black boy was waiting, Mungar Bill having gone on with a pack horse to the camping place and helped to unharness the two leaders which he drove before him ahead. The trees thickened, the buggy wheels caught on stumps. Kaji had to get down at intervals, and with his axe, lop and clear fallen timber. Every mile the progress grew slower, and the forest more lonely. No sign now of a selector's clearing, or of any human occupation. But there was a pack of emus, hustling and shaking their big bunches of feathers, like startled ballet girls. "'I feel as if part of the zoo had been let loose,' said Lady Bridget, when again there bounded along in the near distance, a pair of kangaroos with a little joey kangaroo, taking a lesson in locomotion behind its parents. They were still in the gum forest, but now and then came a belt of giddy scrub, mournful trees with stiff black trunks and grey-green foliage, and a pale sort of wattle flower smelling like dead cattle when rain is about, as McKeith explained. But there was no rain about now, and, in truth, he would have welcomed the unpleasant odour. Perhaps it was that which made the ground so stark and bare between these trees where no grass will grow. The sun was lowering when they left the Gidea. Out in the gum forest again, the birds were chattering before retiring to rest. All life is still in the bush at midday, but now there were curious scutterings among the grass tussocks, and the whir of its insect population sounded all round. The country got prettier, swelling pastures and stony pinches, and a distant outline of hills. They could see the green line of a watercourse. "'Plenty water sit down along a creek?' McKeith asked the black boy. But Kaji shook his woolly head. "'Baal!' Note. Baal. The Aboriginal negative. End note. "'Mine think it, Massa. No rain plenty long time.' McKeith sighed. The dark shadow of coming drought is a fearsome spectre on the Never Never Land. End of Book Two Chapter Six